Father, we are grateful for this morning. It is uh, beautiful outside. It is uh, wonderful weather. It is great that we get to be together on this Lord's Day morning. Uh, we get to come together for Sunday school and open your word and discuss you uh, specifically today. And so we rejoice and we are grateful and we pray that you would bless our time this morning. Help us to think well. Help us to um, uh, ponder truths that uh, your word reveals to us and glorify you in return as this is such a worshipful topic. It should lift our hearts and our minds and our lives and our voices uh, in praise to you as we learn of you. Thank you for making yourself known to us in your word. Uh, Father, we pray for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody should have a sheet. I have a couple of extra sheets if you don't have one. Uh, there are tables and stuff available too. And... Um, does anybody not have, this is the modern language version of this, does anybody not have this and want this? Uh, maybe you've got a different one. Um, you, do you need one? All right, we'll hand this to you. Anybody else? All right. All right. So I just wanted to make a uh, couple of comments about um, chapter one of the confession as, sorry, Red, I didn't, didn't see your hand there. Yeah, go for it. Um, again, the reason we are going through this uh, and the reason we are going through it at the pace we are is because we are wanting to consider this uh, confession that you have in your hand there, the second London Confession of Faith of uh, 1689. We're wanting to um, consider that as a possible doctrinal statement or confession for the church. But in order for us to have any kind of intelligent conversation on that topic about making that change, we of course need to understand what is written here. And so we're taking uh, this time, and we don't know how long it will take. As Stephen and I count the number of chapters and, and whatnot, um, we have to make some decisions about how fast we're going to work through this. And, but the point is for us uh, to understand what is written in it and where uh, the things written in the confession are um, things we already believe, things we already know, and no real change, we kind of want to move quickly just so we can confirm and say, look, this is, we already know this, we already understand this, there's no change in regard to this topic, um, then part of us wants to move quickly. And that is the case uh, to a great degree with chapter 2 of the confession, which is on God and the Holy Trinity. And Stephen and I went back and forth uh, about how quickly to go through this because in one sense, there's, there's not really anything new here. There's not, maybe it goes more in depth. Maybe it deals um, with some topics that perhaps we uh, don't think about all that much. But, um, but this, is, this is pretty standard stuff. This is just Orthodox Christian doctrine in chapter 2. And so part of us wanted to pick up the pace and rip through it. Um, but then we realized we're talking about the doctrine of God. And so we, we don't want to just say, yeah, we got that. Yeah, we know that. And so um, we started off uh, wanting to cover all of chapter 2 in one session and then realized that that was crazy. And so we're going to do each paragraph in one session, Lord willing. Uh, because this is we're talking about the doctrine of our God himself, how he has revealed himself to us. And so, um, though there, uh, we probably won't see anything um, uh, new or 
um, unexpected or anything like that, yet this is our God we're discussing. And so we want to uh, slow down and work our way through this and give adequate attention to this. And so um, because of that, we'll take uh, probably three weeks to go through chapter two, which I think is relatively fast-paced anyway, uh, to, to cover the doctrine of God in three weeks. Um, obviously, we could spend a semester or a year on this and, uh, and not entirely do it justice. So um, that's, that's the, the way we're moving forward with this. Um, and so enough of that. Uh, secondly, I wanted to make a comment about um, chapter 1. We finished chapter 1 of the Confession. It took us a, you know, a few weeks to get through that, and that's on the Holy Scripture, right? And I thought it would be worth commenting, worth noting. Uh, as, as Stephen was finishing up last week, I was, I was kind of vibrating in my chair because I was so excited about, about just uh, how, how solid a teaching that chapter 1 is on Holy Scripture. And if you'll notice, if you turn to 1-1 uh, in your confession, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 1, that first sentence there is essentially a statement of sola scriptura. It starts off with a statement of sola scriptura, and, and, and a good one, and uh, a helpful one. And, and so th- this says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, uh, saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. All right, so a great statement of sola scriptura, and that's because our only infallible uh, uh, source of authority and teaching regarding life, Christian life, faith, and practice is scripture itself. And so there's where we make our final appeal that's where our ultimate uh, decisions are made. That's where we look for uh, what is the uh, final word on these topics. And so a great statement that it started off, and of course we want to affirm that, that we don't go to uh, public opinion, we don't go to our own feelings, we don't go to uh, the smartest philosopher or any other thing like that. As the final authority uh, on these topics, we go to God's Word because we believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura. And of course, we talked about that when we started and, and whatnot. But what really uh, had me vibrating in my chair was paragraph 9. So the, the chapter begins with sola scriptura and it ends with the doctrine of tota scriptura. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself and therefore When there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. What is being hinted at there, and Stephen did a great job of of teaching through this, what is being discussed there is the fact that we we not only, uh, when we're answering a question, not only do we go to one passage and understand perhaps one passage speaking on that topic, but we want to step back and see what all of Scripture teaches on that topic. So we believe in sola scriptura. It is the final authority. But in doing so, we must also understand the Bible altogether. We have to see how the Bible interprets the Bible, for example. And so it's not enough for me to find a proof text. Just a verse that says the thing I want to say or that supports my, uh, my position on a particular thing. That's good as a starting place. But what we really are trying to do is to see what all of Scripture says on that topic. 
You must understand the totality of the message of Scripture. And, and so uh, one of the basic, the most basic and most important hermeneutical principles when we're, when we're interpreting the Bible and we run across a particular passage dealing with a particular subject is that we must recognize there are other passages in the Bible that teach on this same thing. And we must understand them together. And when we are working those together, we must uh, interpret the less clear in light of the clearer. Where Scripture teaches clearly on this subject, and particularly in a, in a teaching fashion, as Stephen pointed out last week, when it is teaching on this topic, and another passage brushes up against that topic, but isn't really teaching or isn't super clear on that topic, we read those two together interpreting the less clear, the less explicit, in light of the more clear and the more explicit. That's so important. That is so important. And that's one of the um, common pitfalls of, uh, of, of people doing Bible study, of, of pastors, of scholars, of anyone doing Bible study, is a failure to relate passages together in a right way. Because we must believe all that the Bible teaches about a particular topic. We must understand that before we make our decision. So when we say sola scriptura, we don't just mean this proof text says this thing. We mean the Bible teaches this on this topic. And actually, uh, with the, um, the framers of the Westminster Confession, for example, which, which came before this one, it's, the, it's a Presbyterian doc, document, very, very similar, but Presbyterian. And they had to go back and add proof texts not because they didn't believe the Bible, but because they didn't want to be guilty of just finding a verse that says what they wanted to say. They were reading and thinking all of Scripture. That's what they were trying to do, how the whole Scripture speaks on this topic. And to, to write down a proof text was like, really, can I, can, I, can I write down a proof text that summarizes all of this stuff? It's so much. It's a whole biblical doctrine. And so they, they kind of had to, and so they not because they weren't trying to be biblical, but because they were trying to be more biblical than just listing a proof text would allow. And so, uh, as Stephen was finishing up last week, I just was kind of twitching, and, and, and I knew I was going to speak this week, so I'd be able to, to address that topic. Um, but that, that's an important one for us to, to realize of, of uh, the way chapter 1 is put together, not only sola scriptura, but tota scriptura. All of scripture must be understood um, in, its, in its message, okay? All right. I could go on, <laughs> but, but I dare not. <laughs> All right. So uh, you see at the top of your sheet there, as we move on to chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity, and it's, it's, uh, it's just three paragraphs and uh, on God and the Holy Trinity. And of course, you can, you're going to learn a whole lot more by reading the entirety of the confession. It's going to talk about God in a hundred different ways. Uh, but, is, but focusing in particularly on God and the Trinity, we just have these three paragraphs. Before we get to that, I wanted to ask a question that you have there on the top of your sheet. Where should we begin our study of theology? And theology, of course, means the study of God, but we also use it more broadly to talk about 
the theology of salvation, the theology of man, the theology of sin. So what we're doing is we're talking about ultimate topics as revealed in Scripture on these different areas. Most specifically, and our topic today is going to be focusing on theology proper, the study of God Himself. But when we're talking about theology in general, whatever theological topic we're talking about, where should we begin our theology, our discussion, our thinking, our working through any topic of theology? Where ought we to begin? Andy. With God? All right. Andy says we should begin with God, right? And uh, that's a good answer, Andy, especially since today is chapter two, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Andy is suggesting that we start with God and we work from there. Right? We work our way down, for example, to man and what we know about man, for example, or any other topic. Angels, I mean, whatever the theological topic is, okay? We're, we're starting with God is what Andy is suggesting and working our way down. Now, that seems almost like that goes without saying, but it doesn't. Because so often there is a tendency to start with what we know or what we think we know. We know ourselves. So Andy gave the example of, of our testimony, right? So we might, we might uh, you know, think about how does salvation work, for example. And we say, well, my experience of salvation was like this. I had this experience. Uh, someone shared the gospel with me, and I had these questions, and I, and I, and I, right? Because I know my perspective, and I know where I am, and I know uh, those sorts of things. I know things about me, right? And then, so I start with knowing what I know about man. And I work my way up to, therefore, what that must say about God and salvation and sin and whatever other topic, right? But we started, so often, this is what happens, we start with what we think we know, which is man. We start with our own experience, and I know when this happened, and I know what was going on, and I know what was said, and I know the thoughts in my mind. And so therefore, I begin to reason from man, and I work my way toward God. But I want to propose that when we do that, we get ourselves into a lot of trouble, or we open ourselves up to trouble, because some of the things we know ain't necessarily so. As I have matured in my Christian life, for example, and I reflect on my conversion, the facts have remained the same. My understanding of those facts has changed somewhat, perhaps even drastically. Because I'm reflecting, I'm thinking, and as I learn more about uh, the sinfulness of man, I learn more about the heart of man and Scripture and things like that, I now reflect with that more biblical understanding upon the events of my own conversion and now I begin to think a little bit differently about my conversion. 
And I realized that actually the way I thought initially on this subject was beginning from the wrong place and, and therefore forcing God like a, like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that doesn't really fit into that spot. You kind of mash it and you kind of bend it a little bit and you kind of force it into that spot but it's the wrong piece. Well, that's kind of what's happening here is we've created because of our experience and our reflection upon our experience. And this happens more than you might think. We know certain things about God, air quotes around the word know, that um, causes us to misshape God and squish him into that spot that we've made available for him because of where we started reasoning. Right? I hope I'm making myself clear on that topic. And this is, uh, this is a great temptation because particularly as a new Christian, what do you know more about, yourself or God? Well, yourself. I mean, you've been living with yourself a long time. You know your thoughts, you know all, right? And so you, you begin to work that direction. And my, my proposal today is that we so often resort to reasoning the wrong direction thinking the wrong direction in regard to theological topics and in our topic today, most specifically. Things that we know form a little uh, a void, allow a space for God to fit into, and then we read Scripture and we try to squish Him into that spot. We're going about it backwards. And there's, I don't, there's, no, there's no malice in doing this. There's no... Um, desire to misshape God or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's the way we start. It comes with uh, the, the fact that we started unconverted and we were the center of our world and then we become converted and we're still kind of the center of our world, right? And so uh, the confession here begins having laid down chapter one that scripture is our final authority. Now immediately chapter two, we move on to God and discussion of God first. So our confession starts where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God. So you start with God and you work your way down. Man isn't even created until day six. He comes on the scene later on. Obviously, man is not the center of the world if he wasn't even there at the beginning. Okay? And so uh, our, our, the confession here wants to start where the Bible starts on this topic. Okay. So I hope that's important, and I can't, I can't stress enough the difference between these two uh, ways of thinking about God and ultimate matters. Very often when I'm in a discussion with someone who, who has a different take on uh, whether it's the doctrine of salvation, uh, uh, perhaps it's you know, the concept that you can lose your salvation, or any of a, a, of a number of other issues, the depravity of man, um, God's providence, uh, any of those topics... Very often, where there's, a, where there's a sharp divide between what I'm trying to say and what the person I'm discussing with is trying to say, where there's a sharp divide, I realize this is the nature. This is the root of that sharp divide. And so we want to avoid that, and the confession here uh, wants to avoid the same thing. So I want to, uh, want to stress that from the very beginning. Very important for us, and very important in your own uh, Bible reading and in your own listening to sermons thinking through what's been preached and, and what's being taught, etc., that we think in those terms, that we begin with what we know about God, and then we work our way towards ourselves. And that's, that's what uh, Scripture essentially does.
So today we're going to begin talking about um, God and the Holy Trinity in our chapter uh, uh, has a, as its paragraph one, which is ours today, the one true God, okay? And so you can see on your list there that I've, I've listed out, and these are not original with me. I, I put a footnote there at the bottom. Um, uh, Rob Ventura uh, edits a, a really good book called A New Exposition of the London Baptist Confession of 1689, and uh, the author on this chapter has him broken down this way. I thought that was very helpful. And so I've just stolen them entirely, right? And um, what's interesting is that normally when we talk about God himself, and we talk about the attributes of God, things that are true of God, things that describe him uh, to us, we normally think in terms of two basic categories. One is the communicable attributes. See, now, if I was smart, I would have come in here beforehand and write that because I can't talk and spell that at the same time. Much less this one, the incommunicable. Did I spell it wrong? I think I got it right. We talk about those two basic attributes. Now, those are words we don't use uh, every day, but you can, see, you can see the root of it. Something that's communicated or something that's not communicated, right? And so uh, we, we talk about certain attributes of God that are, that are exclusive to Him, that we don't share in. And then there are some attributes of God that we share in, though, though to a much lesser degree, but they are true of us in small measure as well. So what might be an example of a communicable attribute, an attribute that is common between God and us? Of course, it's perfected in God, it's unmixed in God, it's ultimate in God, and yet we also share in it. God uh, works this attribute in his people to differing degrees. What, what might be an example? Love. love? Yeah, so that's a communicable attribute, right? God is love, and yet we are to love, and in fact, we do, right? God works that in us uh, by His Spirit in such a way that we grow in love toward one another. Love is a good example, right? Uh, what's another example of a communicable attribute? Knowledge. Yeah, so knowledge. So God is omniscient. He knows all things, but we have knowledge, and we grow in knowledge, right? So we might... Say that. Knowledge. What's, what's one more? What's that? Emotion. Okay, what do you mean? He, 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 right. Yeah. Now, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit later because that's a, that's a very important point on this topic. We, can, we, we, we might uh, say that here. We're going we're gonna to highlight that in just a moment, right? What about holiness? That's a little scary to say that. We have a will. We have a will, okay, right? So that he's, his, his will is final and ultimate. We have a will as well, right? What are some things that are incommunicable attributes? Incommunicable, that are true only of him. So he's triune. So he's, he's without sin, which is kind of like this, right? We are to grow in it, and ultimately, 
in glory, we will be ultimately, finally, without sin. So I would, that's, a, that's a communicable attribute, though the degree of it is vastly different, of course. Mandy. He's infinite, right? Do, do we share in his infinity? No, we're finite. We will always be finite. Right? Uh, omnipresent, so his presence. We're, we're present here. We're localized right here, and he is omnipresent, right? So we could, we could go on. You get the idea. What was that? He's immutable, and we're mutable, right? We're malleable, right? He's immutable, right? He doesn't change. We're going to get to that. All right, that's good enough. But we have potency as well. Not, but, but see how that's a, differing, a difference in degree? As opposed to um, being localized, and he is not ever localized, when we come to omnipotence, it's, that's an infinite degree of something we do possess, which is power. So that, that, I would put that in the communicable attributes. All right, this is the way it's normally arranged. All right, but the confession does not arrange things this way. The confession, as we read through it, you will see that it is arranged... Uh, very differently than this. So let's go ahead and look uh, to the confession here. We're going to go back through and work through it piecemeal, but uh, beginning um, the beginning of uh, paragraph one there of chapter two, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means Clear the guilty, right? So you can see that that is an extremely dense paragraph. Extremely dense. I didn't count the number of semicolons, but they are many, right? Um, there is a whole lot going on there. And so, as I said, we could spend six months or a year pretty easily uh, just on this paragraph discussing uh, the doctrine of God. What we want to do is work our way through and uh, Ventura here, uh, whoever the author was of this particular par uh, chapter, has uh, laid out for us in a very helpful way these different categories, ways of, of categorizing the words uh, and the attributes and the statements about God that have been said in this paragraph. Okay, so we're going to use his outline and work our way through, which I've given you there on your page. Okay, um, so first off, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God. All right, so if I could have someone um, look up 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4. 
And someone else look up Deuteronomy 6.4 unless somebody has it memorized. All right, so read for us, please, uh, 1 Corinthians 8.4. There is no God but one, right? That's why it's been titled singularity. There is only one God, which it's very clear on. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, which is stated as well, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and a number of other places, right? Who has Deuteronomy 6, 4? Go ahead, Mark. All right, so that's like bedrock. That's, that's like sentence one for Old Testament theology right there. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? God is, uh, is one. And so we've called that singularity here. There is only one God living and true, and He is our God, by the way. Did you notice that, that it says the Lord our God? And so as we're working through uh, this discussion of theology or what we call theology proper, we have to be so careful that we follow where it leads, by that I mean to worship. This leads us to worship, not to egg-headedness, right? Not to, we're not just learning new things about God and this, this, uh, this truth and whatnot. We are learning wonderful things about our God. And so it leads us to a place of worship. We respond in awe and wonder and worship at this God as He truly is and as He's revealed Himself to us. And so it's not just, it's not just a, um, we need to get this right. We do need to get this right. It's not only that. He is our God. Not just some ultimate truth disconnected from us, but He has made Himself known to us. The Lord our God is but one. right? He alone it is whom we are to love and to worship. Not some other God so-called. And that's what 1 Corinthians 8, 4 was dealing with there. But God is, God is, is, is uh, alone is, is God, right? So we start with singularity, and that's a great place for uh, the confession, that paragraph there, to begin. It's a great place for us to begin, right? How long did it take Israel to learn that lesson? How long does it take us to learn that lesson? So we move on from singularity, that God is one, something taught everywhere in Scripture, right, to the second one there, which is aseity, aseity. So we continue in the confession, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection. So the word subsistence there refers here to the self-existent life of God. Yes, You bet. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm, I'm going to. So, I, first, I want to define subsistence. But, yes, that's an excellent question. Another word we don't use in everyday talk, right? And we are the poorer for it. Um, all right, so subsistence, it says, whose subsistence is in and of himself, meaning his, his life is self-existent. He is unto himself. He's not dependent upon anything else. His existence is unto himself, and so uh, that leads us to the title there of, of our uh, point number two here, which is aseity. Aseity, which refers to God's self-existence, His self-sufficiency, His independence. 
You and I, however much we might like to be independent and might think that we are self-reliant and all of those kinds of things, we have to sleep at night. You have to eat food. You've got to breathe. In all of those ways and, and a thousand more, you are dependent. Ultimately, we are dependent upon God Himself for our very existence, for our ongoing existence, not to mention our redemption, etc. God, however, is not dependent upon anyone. He's not dependent upon anything. And so, uh, we have a couple of verses there we want to look at. Uh, Jeremiah 10.10, if somebody has that, would you read that for us, please? All right, so he is the ultimate king, right? Everything is dependent upon him. There is no authority higher than him. There is no source of anything higher than him. He is the highest. He is the ultimate. He is himself independent. Isaiah uh, 48 and verse 12 says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. He's making an assertion there, and he does this a number of times in this section of Isaiah, that there is none like him, that he, he is before all things. He is not dependent upon anything. He doesn't need anything. Nothing is provided for him. Could I have someone look up uh, two more verses in connection with this? John chapter 5 and verse 26, and Acts chapter 17 and verse 25. John 5, 26, who's got that? This is really just a test to see who's actually following along, see. The Father has life in Himself. Meaning, He's the source of it. He gives it. You and I have been granted life, for which we're grateful. We don't have life in ourselves. But that's something He grants he gives to the Son as well. The Son is, like Him, source of life, independent. And so we call that aseity. Who has Acts chapter 17 and verse 25? He gives to all men. He doesn't need to be served. I remember going with Amun into the Hindu temple in uh there in Metuchen or in that area and um I'd never been into a Hindu temple before and it was a little strange and there's this god which was a little strange this idol set up there and they brought him a plate looked like an offering plate and it had Oreos in it to feed him right and so they set the Oreos there and they've got some incense going and whatever and I'm kind of watching I'm seeing you know like is someone going to eat these Oreos or that you know what's going on but but the the, the point is that's a God who needs to be served, who needs to be taken care of. He gains something from the gifts of His people, that He is fed Oreos. And I love Oreos more than the next guy. But our God does not need to be fed. He does not need Oreos. He is independent, right? He, is, uh, he needs nothing from us. And so we call that the aseity of God. Utterly independent, self-existent, self-sufficient, okay? Acts chapter 17 and verse 25. 
All right, moving on to point number three. Whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. And so we've called this the incomprehensibility of God. Uh, who, who has uh, Exodus 3.14? Anybody got that? You, go for it. All right, so Moses there is asking God's name, right? And, uh, and there's a lot going on in that passage, but part of it is, look, Moses, just call me I am. <laughs> call me I am. You're not going to be able to comprehend me. Now, there's a difference between comprehension and apprehension, right? Comprehension has the idea of getting your hand all the way around it. Getting your mind all the way around God. I know all there is to know about God. I have reduced him to, uh, to uh, fit the infinite into my finite brain. You already know there's a problem there when that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> right? And so um, we, God is incomprehensible, meaning we cannot wrap our brains around the totality of who he is. He is infinite and I'm finite. Enough said, right? Uh, of course, uh, more needs to be said on that topic. So though he is incomprehensible, that doesn't mean that we can know nothing about him. Though we cannot comprehend God, we can apprehend God. Meaning we can get a hold of him. So this, this little um, chalk holder here has a, has a little thing on it. You put it in your shirt. Of course, I don't know why you do that because then you get chalk all over your shirt. But that's, that's the idea of apprehending, right? The difference, this is me holding. I do have an actual grip. I do have an actual understanding, an actual grasp on this chalk holder, though it's not a comprehensive one. You see the difference there? And so we, 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 when we say that God is incomprehensible, we are not saying that God is unknowable. There is a tendency to put God... In, in a place in the mind where, wow, he's God and he's so much different, so we can't really know for sure th- stuff about him. And so we, we bump God into the category of unknowable. We must not do that, though he is incomprehensible. Yet we can know true things about him. We can get a grasp. We can hold on to the handle. And though we've not comprehended God, we have apprehended God. We understand some true things about him because he has communicated them to us, right? Another way of thinking about incomprehensibility is that God alone can fully understand God as he actually is. We can't stuff infinite God into our finite mind. Thus, we are dependent upon his revelation of himself if we are to understand him. And even then... We know that he is communicating himself to us in ways we can understand and not the way he is absolutely. So Calvin would say that God speaks to us in baby talk. Stoops down uh, like like the way you would talk to, you know, your your two-year-old. You use different vocabulary and when ultimate questions are asked, you describe in a way that that person can understand You're communicating the truth, but in a way that is comprehensible to uh, that person. And so we would say that God is 
uh, communicating himself to us in ways we can understand and not the way he is absolutely in himself because he is infinite. And so he's couching it in terms we can understand so that we can apprehend who he is. And so we can have a true and accurate knowledge of him, but we cannot have exhaustive knowledge of him. Right? So you see how we're kind of going between two ditches here. There are some who will say, well, but that's, you know, uh, even, even though the Bible says that about God, he's so different, how can we really know? Right? So they're, they're nudging him beyond incomprehensibility to unknowability. We can't know true things about him. Is, is, that's one ditch. The other ditch is to, to say, well, I understand how God works, and I understand everything about God, and I can explain this to you. And mystery, what's that? <laughs> right? I, I know these things. So we have ditches on either side, and we have to be careful of both. Right? And so Judges 13, 18, um, why do you ask me my name, seeing it is wonderful? Meaning not just, wow, that's a really great name. I like that. It rhymes. It, no, it's, no, it's wonderful. It's it, it, it inspires wonder and awe because we cannot comprehend it, okay, though we apprehend. All right. So we would say God is incomprehensible. Moving on to point number four, continuing in the confession here uh, with God's simplicity. He is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Okay? And so uh, there is a whole lot there. Uh, none of it should really be new to us. None of this should really be new to us. Um, it's just thinking about it that uh, in, perhaps in, in depth in ways that we have not before. But he is most pure spirit. That's referring to the nature of God. That's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, as opposed to the Father or the Son. It's talking about the nature of God, that He is pure spirit. Okay? He is without body, parts, or passions. Uh, by the way, most pure spirit and invisible seem to be related to each other. Um, it's not that, that um, uh, God can't make Himself uh, give visible manifestation. He does that all over in Scripture, particularly we think of the incarnation, but, but even uh, things in the Old Testament, the burning bush, etc., that's God making himself, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's communicating himself in a visible way, so he has the ability to do that, but he in himself is invisible. You can't, you know, get a good enough telescope to find God and see him somewhere, okay? Uh, he's without body, parts, or passions. That's a reference to divine simplicity. Um, God is not compound. This is a difficult topic, and it's one that's going on. Uh, there, there are a lot of debates and discussion about this right now. I'm not really going to go into uh, those per se, but God is not compound, meaning he's not a mixture of this and that, where you can remove this part, uh, or, or God is, you know, you have these pieces that go into God. That's why when we talk about the Trinity, it boggles the mind for, for many reasons, and one of those reasons is our natural thought is, oh, the, the, the Father is a third of God. Well, no, he's not a third of God, right? The Father is entirely God, and the Son is entirely God, and the Spirit is entirely God, right? God is not made up of parts and pieces that go together to form him. He is simple. In other words, all that is in God is God. He's not, he's not a mixture uh, as if there were ingredients that went together to make God. 
okay? Um, he is uh, simple. Not that he's uh, easy or something like that, but he is not made up of parts, pieces, ingredients that go into making him, okay? He's not compound, but he's one. And uh, he's also impassable, meaning he's without body parts or passions. And that comes to this question. We were talking about emotion here. And what, what, does, uh, what do you think the confession here means when it says he's without passions? Is he apathetic? Does that mean that God is apathetic? God's just a machine. He has no, uh, he has no emotion or uh, response uh, to things. Um, no, we're not saying that God is apathetic. We're saying that God doesn't have passions, though he does have affections, right? He, now, see if I can, if I can uh, make this known quickly <laughs> uh, so that we can understand these things, all right? When you get up in the morning, and it's still dark outside, and you walk into the kitchen to make your coffee because that's where everybody ought to start their day, right? And then you're going to grab your Bible and you're going to read, but you stub your toe. What's your response? You, you don't have to tell us the words you use. Ouch. Hey, good word. That's a good word, Simi. All right, so something happened. Now, is that an emotional response? It, it kind of is, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a response in the sense of uh, it's, a, it's an impassioned response. So the idea of passion, let's see if I can get this right. Passion means to suffer. It's connected to the word to suffer. So when we talk about the passion of the Christ, we're talking about the suffering of Christ. We're not talking about that he was really worked up about something. Passion is when, uh, if, if you're the object here, something happens to you. And the word, ouch, comes out, right? Or whatever the emotional response might be. Something happened to you you suffered something, and your response is anger, ouch, crying, whatever it is, or something else, right? That's the idea of passion. God doesn't have passion. Why, why would we say, given this, why would we say that God is without passions? Things don't happen to God. He's ultimate. He's self-sufficient. Things don't happen to God. Right? And so this paradigm never happens with God where things happen to Him. He is the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate cause. He is behind all things. And so things don't happen to Him. Where, where did it come from? Something above Him? No. Right? Whereas we are finite and we're going through this world and we interact with one another and, and I kick Simi in the shins and then everybody jumps on me because why would I do that, right? But then she says, ouch, right? So we interact with one another causing such things. That's the idea of passion. And so um, the confession says that God is without passions, body, part, or passions. But my wife correctly said God has emotions. He has responses and so we talk about affections, that God has affections. Here's the difference. Uh, I'm not going to draw God. I'll draw myself. 
All right, that's me. And uh, the idea of affection is that there is some truth within me that comes out and shows itself. It originated within me and it shows itself in these different circumstances, in these different actions, right? Rather than me suffering something which caused a response, this is something inherent within me that shows itself. That's an affection. Does God have that? Does God have aspects and elements uh, true of Him that cause Him to show emotion? Not emotion in this way, but emotion in this way for sure. Right? We see that all the time, God responding. Yes, Shauna. Um, okay, so when we speak of the triune God and, and Jesus definitely did suffer, really, but so is that because of his fully human side versus his fully yes. side? Yes, yes. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, so we're talking about, uh, in Christ, we're talking about his, uh, his humanity suffering. Yes, that's exactly right. All right. And so uh, we, we, the... This is, a, this is a discussion that's going on right now um, about um, God being impassable but the, and, and what exactly that means. But the confession here is clear that He is impassable, right? So that's a part of, um, that's a part of His simplicity, okay? I need to move on. I've got 10 minutes and I've got too many points left. Infinity. Oh, we'll just rip through that one, right? No, uh, point number five, the infinity of God, Okay? we're talking about His infinity. And so we continue with the confession here. Who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, which was a category from earlier, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. Okay. So if I could get, we'll, we'll read these verses. If I could have someone from the front row get Malachi 3.6. If I could have someone from the second row over here, get 1 Kings 8, 27. Someone second row over here, Jeremiah 23, 23. Someone in the, in the third row, uh, Psalm 90, verse 2. And fourth row, you guys will have to arm wrestle over who it's going to be, Genesis 17, uh, verse 1. And fifth row, Isaiah 6 and verse 3. All right, so... Uh, says that he is immutable. What's Malachi 3.6? For I So I, the Lord, do not change. Right? I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, you're not consumed. That's because of this, by the way. Right? So, uh, therefore, they are not consumed. He is immutable. He is changeless. Uh, he is immense. What about 1 Kings 8.27? So he is immense. He is, he is. Uh, he fills every space. You can't contain him, and they can't put him in a box. Um, all right, well, let's move on then to um, Psalm ninety and verse two. I know we skipped Jeremiah twenty three twenty three. Uh, Psalm ninety and verse two. From everlasting, from everlasting, to everlasting, your, he is eternal. Right? He's incomprehensible. He's almighty. Genesis 17, verse 1. If 
you got it read, go for it. Right, so very foundation of the relationship uh, there with Abraham and God is the understanding that he is almighty, which is going to uh, be a theme, of course, that remains through the rest of Scripture. He is every way infinite. He is most holy, Isaiah 6.3. That's, uh, that's the vision that Isaiah has there, right? And the angels are, are shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory, right? He is most holy. We uh, are to be holy, he is most holy, and He is most wise, He is most free, He is most absolute, right? So God is infinite in terms of place, He's immense. He's infinite in terms of time, He's eternal. He's infinite in terms of knowledge, He's incomprehensible. And He's infinite in terms of power, meaning that He is almighty, okay? So God is infinite. And we saw in there most holy, uh, most wise, etc. Those are the communicable attributes from the category that we showed earlier. Point number six discusses God's sovereignty. And I think uh, these will <clears throat> be clear to us as we go on here. Continuing in the confession, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. Uh, if I could have someone find Psalm 115.3. Someone else, Isaiah 46.10. Someone else, Romans 11.36, though you've probably got some of those memorized. God uh, is working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He does all that He pleases. Right? Accomplishing His will. Isaiah 46.10. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. And why does he do this? Just because he wants to? Or Romans eleven thirty six. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. To him be the glory forever. He does these things for his own glory. God is sovereign. And our uh, confession that we're examining here really uh, wants to drive that point home. You can see that this uh, this. Uh, portion of a sentence here is uh, essentially a quotation, right? Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, all right? So God is sovereign. So the confession wants to make uh, sure that that point is driven home about God. Uh, point number seven, and so that, these are all going to be developed, by the way. They're, we're, the way the conf confession works Things are stated in propositional form, and then you follow the threads, and you see how it's developed uh, more further on, and that's certainly the case with God's sovereignty. Uh, number seven uh, discusses God's love, and what a beautiful uh, section here. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, right? That God is loving he is gracious. He is merciful. And so uh, with this ha following right on the heels of the sovereignty of God, having come before, we need to be reassured and have it affirmed to us that God is, while He is sovereign, He is as well loving and gracious and merciful. And isn't that an important thing for us to hold our hands onto? It's uh, it's a temptation sometimes to let one or the other go because of how 
it, it, uh, perhaps we don't like the tension, or perhaps we prefer the one doctrine over the other doctrine. But they are both true, and they are not in contradiction to one another, but they must be held together. Otherwise, we lose a proper understanding both of his sovereignty and of his love, unless we hold on to both of those. And so the confession is uh, desirous to keep those things together. And we finish with point number eight, his justice. He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. He is holy and just, and his judgment and his justice are real things that we must be aware of. And so this last portion here describes man uh, in, 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 in connection with God without the presence of a mediator. Right, that that God doesn't just wink at sin. Oh, that's yeah, that's just a little sin. We'll just let that go. We'll just that doesn't need to be dealt with. That would be that would be unjust of God to do that. And God is just. He is all the way just. And so this is not the final word on this topic because we will discuss the mediator and we will discuss how that difficulty is resolved uh, for us. How it is that God can be both. Uh, one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet he by no means clears the guilty. He doesn't just wink at sin, and yet he is gracious and redeeming, praise God. And so here in this uh, first paragraph, we have a presentation of who God is that, that, that is um, well-rounded. It's not in any sense a uh, full comprehension of who God is, but it is for sure... Uh, a helpful way for us to apprehend who God is, that we might get a, a true and right and biblical picture of who He is, though it is not an exhaustive picture. It is nevertheless true and helpful, and it's a place to begin. All right, so uh, I'll go ahead and end there. Oh, you have a question? Genesis chapter 4 mm. and everything that I am. Yeah. He, he, he showed us, he revealed himself in bits and pieces. Yeah. So we can see, okay, God loves, and then we can follow that up and see yeah. how, how he loves through the rest of Scripture. That's right. And, and so, anyway, if he would have told us everything that he was or is, yeah. then it would be so confusing. Yeah. Yeah, and by the way, that's a great plug for uh, our evening service tonight, where we're going to be talking about the covenant of redemption and seeing God's um, uh, covenant with Himself between the members of the Trinity in um, laying out this salvation for us and how it works, how it was agreed upon, and how it comes into play in history and in our lives. So that's an encouragement for that tonight at six o'clock. Let me pray for us. And, uh, and we will be done. Father, we are so grateful that you have made yourself known to us. Were we left to reason our way to you, to emote our way to you, were we left to try and fumble around in the dark and figure out um, who you are and what you're like and how we can be related to you, we would, we would be most pitiful creatures. The result would, uh, would not be a good thing. But you have spoken to us true things about yourself from your word. You have spoken to us truth about how we, though we are finite and though we are fallen, can nevertheless apprehend truth about you. 
And you have made yourself known to us in gracious ways that, that are wonderful to us. And we are uh, so grateful that you have made yourself known to us ultimately in your Son. In the redemption that is in Him, we get to have peace with you, this wonderful God. And we get to call you our God. And indeed, we do worship you and bow down before you. And we look forward to joining together in a few minutes in song and in prayer and sitting under the teaching of your word and worshiping you, uh, our great God and Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.